The following sermon was delivered on Sunday morning, March 26, 2006, at Trinity Baptist Church in Montville, New Jersey. The words of our Lord Jesus recorded in Matthew 7, 19 and 20 are both simple and they are clear. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you shall know them. According to our Lord, it is fruit for the fire, not notions for the fire, not ideas or the fire, but fruit or the fire. And in the light of that simple and clear statement of our Lord repeated in other contexts, I'm presently considering with you from the Word of God the fruit of saving faith. Having opened up the teaching of the Word of God concerning the necessity and the nature of saving faith, we are now examining what the Scriptures tell us concerning the fact that there are necessary and inevitable fruits or accompaniments of saving faith. If we are to maintain the purity of the gospel, we must insist upon two categories of biblical truth and present these truths with equal emphasis and with proper balance. The first is the truth that the salvation of hell-deserving sinners is a salvation that is rooted in grace alone, is procured by Christ alone, and is received by faith alone. The maintenance of the purity of the gospel rests upon a grasp of those realities and a constant reiteration of those realities that our salvation flows out of grace alone, is found in Christ alone, and is received by faith alone. But the second truth, that must be emphasized with equal clarity and in due balance with the first, is that if we receive Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, in faith alone, that faith will not remain alone. But it is a faith which, working by love, is accompanied with inevitable fruit. And therefore, where there is no fruit, there is no root of saving faith. And one of the great tragedies since the Reformation, when that former truth was clearly articulated, there have been periods in the history of the church when not balanced with the second truth. It has led to mere nominalism, formalism, dead orthodoxy, call it what you will, but multitudes of people who say, I believe, but there is no evident fruit. That fruit which the Spirit of God in the Word of God says is both the necessary and the inevitable accompaniment of saving faith. And if you ask the question, what are those necessary fruits? I have suggested that 
they certainly can be reduced to three that are indisputable. Where there is true saving faith in Christ, there will be a love for the person of Christ, an obedience to the word of Christ, and a growing conformity to the moral character of Christ. And in two previous messages, I addressed the first two, that where there is true faith in Christ, there will be love for the person of Christ. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Whom having not seen, you love. Whom having not seen, you love. In whom, though you see him not yet believing, all who are truly believing in Christ have love for the person of Christ, so that the apostle can say, If anyone love not our Lord, let him be anathema. Let him be damned. Let him be accursed of God. And as surely as the scripture says, he that believes not shall be damned, the scriptures say, he that does not love Christ shall be damned. And then likewise, the scriptures are equally clear that as one of the inevitable fruits of faith, there will be obedience to the word of Christ. For Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, if we say that we know him and do not keep his commandments, we lie and we do not the truth. But now we come this morning to consider the third necessary fruit of saving faith, the third inevitable accompaniment of a true trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, and it is this, a growing conformity to the moral likeness of Christ. And as we seek to think through this vital subject, we'll do so under three heads, the first of which is a word of explanation and definition. What in the world do I mean by these words, a growing conformity to the moral likeness of Christ? Well, let me begin by stating that what is moral is concerned with right and wrong. What is pleasing or displeasing to God? We say of something, well, that is really a moral issue. What we mean is it is an issue of right or wrong. And the moral likeness to Christ has to do with our becoming more and more like the one of whom it is said, He was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, or again the scripture says, that he did no sin, neither was guile or deceit found in his mouth, or he said of himself, I do always, in every circumstance, in every situation, in every relationship, from my motives, to the disposition of my heart, to the tone of my voice, to the look of my eye, I do always the things that please my Father. Or yet again, it is said of Him that He has loved righteousness and hated iniquity. So in summary, we can say the moral character of our Lord was that perfect conformity to the will of the Father. In His intellectual life, He never thought one thought that was displeasing to his father, that was contrary to truth. 
In his emotional life, he never felt one human emotion, though he experienced the full range of every human emotion. Never once was there the twinge of an emotional experience in our Lord that was contrary to that which was pleasing to God. His intellectual life, his emotional life, his volitional life, he never made a choice whether it was to pick up a toothpick or whether it was to rebuke Pharisees, whether it was to overturn tables in the temple, whether it was to stretch out his hand to heal, whether it was to submit himself to the indignities of being stripped naked and buffeted and bruised and eventually impaled upon the cross. He never made one choice from the slightest matter of the choice of his will to the greatest issues on which our redemption hangs in the volitional life of our Lord Jesus. He did no sin. And in relationship to his God, he loved him perfectly, continually, incessantly. There was never a millisecond when he did not love his father with his whole heart, his whole soul, his whole mind, and his whole strength. There was never a relationship to his fellow men in which he did not love his neighbor perfectly as himself. So when we think of the moral character of our Lord Jesus, we are thinking of this amazing reality of what he was as sinless in our human condition, in the totality of his intellectual, his emotional, his volitional life, in every facet of his relationship to his Father and to his fellow men. So by stating that the fruit of saving faith is a growing conformity to the moral likeness of Christ. I'm underscoring that this conformity touches all that constitutes the moral perfection of Jesus. And that if we are not growing into that likeness, we have no grounds to say that our faith in Christ is saving faith. For one of the necessary and inevitable fruits of saving faith is a growing conformity to that moral likeness. It is not static. It is not even. But if you connect the dots over a period of time, the line is moving upward. As we move towards that which we shall be, when God completes his work of redemption in us, and we bear perfectly the moral likeness of our Lord Jesus, in which the totality of our intellectual life will not think one thought that is displeasing to God for one millisecond, in which we will not feel anything at any level, in any circumstance, that is not totally well-pleasing to God in which we will make no choice about the most inconsequential thing we do in heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth that is not utterly, perfectly pleasing to God, in which we will love God incessantly, perfectly, heart, mind, soul, and strength, without any need of sleep. And we'll love one another as ourselves. Now that's what I mean by the moral likeness of Christ and by stating that one of the necessary, hear me dear people, necessary, not optional, but necessary fruits 
and inevitable accompaniments of saving faith is a growing conformity to the moral likeness of Christ. Now, having set before you that word of explanation and definition, we come secondly. The biblical demonstration of this fact. I've made what to some of you is an astounding and shocking assertion. I better have good biblical feet on which to place it. And I believe I do. On what biblical grounds have I asserted that growing conformity to the moral likeness of Jesus is a necessary and inevitable fruit of saving faith? Well, I set the case before you under three major propositions. Proposition number one. Conformity to the moral likeness of Christ is rooted in God's eternal purpose and plan of salvation. Conformity to the moral likeness of Christ is rooted in God's eternal purpose and plan of salvation. If the salvation which we receive by faith alone, coming to us by grace alone, Procured by Christ alone is a salvation planned and purposed in eternity. We're compelled to ask the question, what was God's design in conceiving this wonderful plan and in framing this amazing purpose to save a people out of the race of Adam for himself? And when we ask that question, we see that indeed conformity to the moral likeness of Christ is rooted in that eternal purpose and plan of salvation. When we turn to the word of God, an answer that we find is that God's eternal purpose and deliberate plan in this salvation was to take the marred, ruined, image bearers of himself, sinners such as you and me, and to restore the image of himself after the pattern of his Son, Jesus Christ. And I want you to look with me at what is the watershed text that demonstrates this incontrovertibly. Romans chapter 8. We're all familiar with verse 28. And we know that to them that love God, all things work together for good. And those that love God, those who are the people of God, are described in another way now. Even to them that are called according to purpose. And you may have a Bible that has the his in italics. There is no his, no possessive pronoun in the original, so we could rightly render it. We know that to them that love God, all things work together for good. To them that are called according to purpose. God's people are here described as those who love God. Why? Because love is a necessary, inevitable fruit of faith. True believers love God. Paul assumes that. And so he says, all things are working together for good to those that love God. How else are they described? They are described as those who have been called, not merely summoned, but the use of the word call in the epistles 
without exception, refers to God's summons that is effectual. A summons that secures what it demands. It not only invites us and summons us to Christ, but it lays hold of us and brings us to Christ so that to be called is another designation of a true Christian in the New Testament. So they are the ones who are called. But what is the paradigm of their calling? It is according to purpose. They're not called willy-nilly. In other words, God does not decide on Tuesday, well, you know, I think I'll call that sinner. Oh, yeah, that'd be a nice idea, so I'll call him as though God's calling of us is an afterthought in his mind. No, it is a calling according to divine purpose. And where was that purpose birthed? Paul goes on to tell us. For whom, not what he foreknew, but whom, the people whom he foreknew, that is, the called according to purpose, those that love God, his true people, whom he foreknew, that is, those whom he loved beforehand, he also foreordained, he predetermined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn, he might have the place of preeminence among many brethren. And whom he foreordained, those whom he predetermined to be made into the image of his Son, them he also called, whom he called he also justified, whom he justified them he also Glorified, that is, the divine purpose that they should be conformed to the image of His Son will ultimately be realized in their glorification when in spirit and in body they will bear the perfect image of God as revealed and mirrored in Jesus Christ. So what do we learn from this passage? We learn that when God Birthed in eternity, and we're talking like nonsense. We mumble, but what else can we do when in passages like this? When God birthed his saving purpose in the very womb of eternity, it was his purpose that these wretched, fallen, marred image bearers in Adam should have his image fully restored, an image restored after the pattern of his own beloved Son. So that this matter of conformity to the moral likeness of Christ is not an ancillary, secondary, optional element in salvation. It has its roots its tap roots in the very saving of purpose of God from the time that purpose existed. It is central. It is foundational. Moral likeness to Jesus Christ is rooted in God's eternal plan of salvation. We read of it in Ephesians 1 this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, according as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, 
Not that we should merely be justified. Not that we should merely be brought out of the misery of our sin. No, the text says that we should be holy and without blemish before Him. That we should bear perfectly the image of His holy, spotless, harmless, sinless Son. So that to speak of election and foreordination and predestination and not to be passionate to be like Jesus is to separate what God has joined. It should never be separated in our thinking, in our experience, in one's preaching. Because God has said that in the taproot of eternal plan and purpose, conformity to Christ is central. But then secondly, conformity to the moral likeness of Christ is rooted in the procurement of salvation in the person and work of Christ. You see, not only is conformity to the moral likeness of Christ rooted in the eternal plan and purpose of God, but it is also rooted in the procurement of salvation in the person and work of Christ. And could it be otherwise? If he comes forth to do the will of the Father, and the will of the Father is that a certain number of specific elect sinners should be so wrought upon by His grace that they will ultimately reflect perfectly the image of His Son, then when the Son comes forth to do the will of the Father, surely His will will coalesce and be aligned with the Father's purpose, so that all that He does in His own purpose and work in space-time history is geared towards that transformation of these sinners into the moral likeness of Jesus. Now let's look at two texts that clearly teach this. The first is Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. As the apostle in this paragraph addresses wives first and then husbands in their mutual duties in the light of the gospel and its impact upon their lives, he writes in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it that he might make it a company of people gigglingly happy all the time. Now sitting under some ministries, you'd think that's why Christ came, to make us all gigglingly happy. That isn't what the text says. He gave himself up for the church in order that, a purpose clause, he might sanctify it, set it apart from the dominion and realm of sin unto God and to his service, having cleansed it by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Do you see the emphasis? He gave himself up in sacrificial, self-giving love, that he might have a bride that is marked by what? Sanctity, cleansing, no spot, no wrinkle, no such thing, holy and without blemish. Christ died. 
that he might have a holy people. A people in whom his moral character is increasingly reflected until the consummation when it will be perfectly reflected. And he does indeed present his bride to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Christ did not go down into the horrors of Gethsemane. He did not go to the shameful accusations of Gabbatha. He didn't go to the horrific realities of Golgotha just to have a people who say, oh yeah, I believe in him. My sins are forgiven and now I'm getting on with life. He, he died to have a people who are passionate about the purpose for which he died. And that purpose is that they reflect his moral likeness that they reflected in their intellectual life, that they reflected in their emotional life, in their volitional life, in their actions, in their motives, in their attitudes, as his moral perfection touched every atom of his being. So he died to have a people who longed to have that moral perfection in every atom of their being. And there's no part of what they are concerning which they draw a circle and say a matter of indifference as to whether or not I'm pursuing conformity to Christ. My emotional life, that's my business. My intellectual life, that's my business. Oh yeah, my moral deeds, I shouldn't fornicate, shouldn't commit adultery, shouldn't steal, shouldn't punch someone in the nose. Yeah, I'm willing for Christ to have his way there. But my friend, if you truly believe upon Christ, your heart is lined up with the purpose for which Christ died. Which was not only to form a just basis upon which God could forgive you and still be holy and just and righteous, but he died according to this passage. That you might be holy. That his moral character, by the power of the Spirit, would be more and more manifested in you, in the totality of your being. Then you have the Titus 2 passage that points in the same direction. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. After Paul has given very specific directions to Titus concerning what he should say to the various categories within the churches there in Crete. Older people, young people, servants. And he says in verse 11, here's the purpose for all this detailed, ethical, moral instruction of people where they are in the circumstances of their lives. For, this is why I'm doing this, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to the intent that denying, saying no to ungodliness and worldly lusts, ungodliness in our intellectual life, in our emotional life, in our volitional life, ungodliness wherever it would appear that saying no to ungodliness and to worldly lust. Desires that grow out of a world system in opposition to God, in which there is no area of human existence which the world does not have its own Bible, with its own standards and its own pressure, denying, saying no, turning away, consciously repudiating. 
ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, thinking rightly about the reality of who we are and what the world is and that to which we are called, and righteously, according to God's standard, as perfectly revealed in His Son, and godly in this present world. In this present world, not saying, oh, I'll get all that when I die and go to heaven and join the spirits of just men made perfect. Until then, you're going to sin, and we, you know, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Why get so serious about being a holy man and a holy woman? Well, read on. Instructing us to the intent that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of the great God in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all gross, evident forms of iniquity. No, from all iniquity. Purify to himself a people for his own possession, gladly acknowledging I'm not my own, I'm bought with a price, I have no right to think my own thoughts. Every thought must be brought captive to the obedience of Christ. I have no right to let my emotions run hither and yon according to my impulses. I am purchased property, not only my mind, my emotions, my will, all that I am. I have a Savior who died to redeem me from all iniquity and purify to himself a people for his own possession, zealous consumed with holy passion and fire of good works. Because it says of our Lord, He went about doing good. We can sin by passivity. We can sin by sitting when we ought to be actively going and expressing the compassion and the love and the concern of our Lord Jesus. This passage says Christ died. To have a people in whom there is reflected his moral likeness. When Jesus entered upon his work, what was his design and purpose? To live a perfect life as the last Adam and the second man. And to die a vicarious, curse-bearing death. That's the teaching of Romans 5 and Galatians 3. And he did this to secure a just ground to justify us so that God might not only pardon our sins but declare us righteous before the law. Take us beyond what Adam had. Before Adam fell, Adam had not sinned. He was not exposed to condemnation. But he had no positive track record of righteousness. Now in Jesus Christ we not only have our sins forgiven but we are given a status before the law as though we had perfectly kept it because in the person of our representative, we have kept it. All that he did in his obedience to the Father, intellectually, emotionally, volitionally, in relationship to God and to man, he did as a representative man, as our federal head, and in Christ I have his standing before God in the court of heaven. Why did he do all of that? Just that we might rejoice in that standing? No. 
but that we might see in the one who secured it for us, that standard, perfect standard, and with all of our hearts say, believing in him and trusting in him alone for my acceptance with God, I desire to be like him. And I am determined to pursue conformity to his moral likeness at any cost short of sin. In every area. And nothing is going to be called no man's land. Nothing. Nothing. Then we come thirdly. I said that this proposition that the inevitable fruit of saving faith rests down not only upon the divine purpose and the procurement of salvation, but thirdly, conformity to the moral likeness of Christ flowers in the actual application of salvation to every sinner who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's rooted in eternal purpose. It's rooted in procurement of our salvation by Jesus Christ. Where does it flower? It flowers in the actual application of salvation to every sinner who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now most of you are well instructed enough to know that our salvation has three tenses. We have been saved if we truly believe on the Lord Jesus. We are being saved and we shall be saved at the second coming, or in two stages, at death, and then our bodies at the second coming. Well, if we look at that salvation in those three dimensions of it, or three facets of it, we see that this matter of conformity to the moral likeness of Christ is central to every facet. On the threshold of the application of saving grace, what does God do? When he unites us to his Son, this is the teaching of Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. In union with Christ, we experience the power of his death and of his resurrection. And the apostle says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Let me rephrase it. Shall we continue indifferent as to whether or not we reflect the image of God? as that image is seen in Jesus Christ? He says, God forbid. Why? We who are such as have died to sin, how shall we any longer live therein? Or are you ignorant? And then he goes on to open up the truth, that in faith union with Christ, we have in union with Christ been put to death to sin, And we have been raised to newness of life in union with our Lord Jesus Christ so that he can say in verse 14, Sin shall not exercise lordship over you, for you are not under law but under grace. You have come within the dynamic of grace. Grace that is not only provided a free and full pardon and justification up to the end of Romans 5, but has provided deliverance from the dominion of sin. And on that basis, we are to reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God in union with Christ Jesus. And on that basis, neither present our members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present ourselves unto God and our members as instruments of righteousness. In other words, we are to consciously pursue the pattern 
of moral perfection in our Lord Jesus that was not ephemeral and mystical. It touched all of the areas of his holy existence in every relationship. Paul can say in Colossians 3.9, you have put off the old man and put on the new who is being renewed unto knowledge after the image of him that created him. So on the very threshold, when God breaks into our lives in saving grace and we embrace the Lord Jesus as our Savior by faith alone, out of the grace of God alone, there is this radical breach with the dominion of sin and the recognition that sin and I no longer have a close and chummy relationship. But then in the ongoing experience of the Christian life, and here I want you to turn with me to what is to me one of the most wonderful and pivotal passages on this whole theme, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is expounding the contrast between the old and the new covenants. You remember that Moses had to put a veil on when he came down from the mountain because there was something of the glory of God shining off his face and the people couldn't look upon it. But now in verse 17, here is a contrast under the new covenant. But we all, now notice, we all, not just apostles, not just special, super-duper Christians, we all, we all who are truly a part of the new covenant community, our sins have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, Heart of stone has been removed. We've been given a heart of flesh. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. We don't behold directly. John saw him directly in vision and revelation. One and it almost killed him. He fell like a man shot with a forty-five magnum right in the temples. He said, I fell at his feet like a dead man. We see... Reflected is in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. And what happens? As we behold that glory, as it is reflected to us in the scriptures, in the reading, teaching, and preaching of the word, and we see something of our Lord, what is happening? But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as from the Lord the Spirit. The Apostle is bold to assert that every true member of the New Covenant community, beholding Christ as he's revealed and mirrored to us in the Scriptures, is undergoing a constant transformation. The very word used of the transfiguration. When Jesus was transfigured before them and something of his deity burst through the thin veil of that humanity and they were stunned and shocked, God is doing something in us to conform us to the likeness of his Son. Beholding, we are transformed. Looking and gazing we are experiencing a transformation into the same image from one stage of glory to another. There is progress. Yes, at times the progress is slow. Sometimes there is regression. But connect the dots 
And in every true Christian, there is a growing conformity to the moral likeness of Jesus Christ. If that's not true, then tell the apostle to rewrite this and say, but some of us. But he says, we all, we all, all of us who are truly in the new covenant community, because God purposed in eternity that we'd be conformed to his Son, Jesus died that that work of confirmation might be secured in us. The Holy Spirit now dwells in us in order that the purpose of the Father and the purpose of the Son may be actually realized in the people of God. And to say you believe in Christ and you are not being progressively transformed into his image is to say you're frustrating the Trinity. And you can't escape the logic of it. The Father purposed to make us like Jesus. Jesus died to secure that purpose by his death. And the Holy Spirit has come to indwell us to accomplish the sovereign decree of the Father and the purpose of the purchase of the Son. And for you to sit here and say, I believe in Jesus. And you are not growing in likeness to Jesus. You are saying, I have frustrated the purpose of the triune God. And God doesn't get frustrated. Conformity to the moral likeness of Christ flowers in the actual application of salvation to every sinner who truly believes on Christ. This passage, add to it more briefly, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6. He that says he abides in him, the one who says, I have union with Christ, and I'm enjoying the fruit of that union, ought himself also to walk even as he walked. You say you abide in him, you have life in union with Christ, then the onus is upon you to walk as he walked, to have your life, a life of growing conformity to the moral likeness of Christ. Listen to one of God's choice servants commenting on this principle. This process of transformation into the image of Christ is none other than the restoration of the image of God which was marred through the fall of man. In Christ, says Archbishop Ramsey, mankind is allowed to see not only the radiance of God's glory, but also the true image of man. Into that image, Christ's people are now being transformed. And in virtue of this transformation into the new man, they are realizing the meaning of their original status as creatures made in God's image. The image of Christ is the true seal of the Spirit with which the believer is impressed. Indeed, as Calvin explains, the design of the gospel is precisely this. Listen. This is not some novelty that I'm preaching this morning. Back in the 16th century, Calvin explains, here it is, that the image of God which has been defaced by sin may be repaired within us. He says that's the very end of salvation. And he adds, quote, the progress of this restoration is continuous through the whole of life because it is little by little that God causes his glory to shine forth in 
us. In justification through faith into Christ, the sinners accepted in Christ, who himself is the pure and perfect image of God, and that divine image is freely imputed to the believer. In sanctification through the operation of the Holy Spirit, who enables the believer constantly to behold the glory of the Lord, that image is increasingly imparted to the Christian. In glorification, justification, and sanctification become complete in one, For that image is then finally impressed upon the redeemed in unobscured fullness to the glory of God through all eternity. And of course, in the consummation at the second coming, John can say, Beloved, beloved, now are we the sons of God. But it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then he adds, and everyone that has this hope in him continually purifies himself even as he is pure. Do you have that hope? If the Lord Jesus broke through the clouds this afternoon, seeing him, the work of transformation and conformity to his moral likeness, not only spiritually, but physically, would be complete in an instant? Is that your hope? You say, yes, I believe unto that hope. John says, everyone that has this hope, everyone who has a right to this hope, is continually purifying himself by what standard? Even as he is pure. Pursuing conformity to Christ intellectually, emotionally, volitionally, relationally. Not putting any area in a no man's land. I can't emphasize it enough, dear people. I fear it is the crucial error of not a few of you sitting here. Areas in which you never even think, does Christ have something to teach me about how I should live from his example in this situation? Or as we learned a few weeks ago, are there some precepts in the word of Christ that touch this area? Lord, show me. Don't live as though there's any area of no man's land. You are purchased property. The whole of you. To the whole of a life conformed to the Lord Jesus. So I trust I've persuaded you from the scriptures. That moral conformity or conformity to the moral likeness of Christ. Is indeed an issue of great concern. And is indeed a matter of the fruit and necessary accompaniment of faith. Having given a word of explanation and definition, spent most of our time on the biblical demonstration of the fact that growing conformity to the moral likeness of Christ is a necessary fruit of faith. Thirdly, I want to make some personal applications of this fact. And first of all, surely it calls us It constitutes a call to worship and to wonder. If we've laid hold of Christ with the empty hand of saving faith, it is certain that one day we shall be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. Why? Whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed not one-tenth, not half or three-quarters, but totally to the image of Christ. Of Christ. Think of it. One day, one day, you will have 
intellectual motions and impulses and responses that are perfectly conformed to the intellectual purity of your Savior. Emotionally, volitionally, in relation to God, in relationship to man, God is committed, and Paul said, He who has begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. And so, child of God, this is a call to worship and to wonder that my Savior will indeed be the firstborn among brethren. He'll have the chief place, but we'll all bear the family likeness. With all the ways that our individuality will color and will shape our likeness to Christ, every one of us will be like Him, for we'll see Him as He is. Repentance, no more. Mourning over sin, no more. Contrition, no more. Perfectly conformed to the likeness of Jesus. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us is called the first fruits. The harvest is going to come. He's called the down payment. The full compensation is sure to come. So when you get tired in the battle, and when you're ready to give over, say, no, I cannot give over the Father purpose that I should be like Christ. Christ died that that purpose might be realized. The Holy Spirit dwells within me to enable me to pursue it. I will not give over. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says, you've not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Child of God, let this reality nerve you for the battle and strengthen you in the struggle. We shall be like him. It's a call to worship and wonder. But secondly, it constitutes a call to serious self-examination. Can you discern any real progress in conformity to the moral likeness of Jesus? Can your spouse, can your kids, those who work with you, your classmates, do they see that your trigger temper is being, by degrees, restrained? The indications of your pride being withered, your irritability being harnessed, your laziness giving way to industry, your self-indulgence to self-denial, your selfishness to genuine altruism, your insensitivity giving way to sensitivity to others, your sharp tongue becoming a kind and a healing tongue, your gossiping tongue becoming restrained, your jealousy giving way to thankfulness for what others have that you don't have, your envy giving way to a spirit of contentment, your unforgiving spirit giving way to a cheerful delight in forgiving others, your impure thoughts withering before the power of God's grace, your gloomy Eeyore unbelieving spirit giving way to holy joy. Come on now, ask yourself, can I see the work of the Spirit making me more like Jesus? Dare you ask your husband, over lunch, or in a quiet hour this afternoon, dear, be honest with me, with judgment day honesty, do you see any growth in likeness to Christ in me? And be true to my soul, and tell me the truth. 
Gather your kids together. And ask them. Ask them. If not, go down before God. Go down before God in the presence of your husband, your wife, your kids, whoever. And say, I've dishonored my Savior. I've denigrated his salvation that is committed to make me like Jesus. And it's not going on. What's the cause? Pray that God will show you what the cause is. And deal with it ruthlessly. I say this study should not only be a call to worship and wonder, but a call to serious self-examination. Thirdly, it constitutes a call to clear-headed thinking concerning the inseparable nature of justification and sanctification. It calls to clear-headed thinking concerning the inseparable nature. 1 Corinthians 1.30 But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. If we're in Christ, he's not only made unto us righteousness, he is made unto us sanctification. Never allow yourself to separate. Faith alone lays hold of Christ and brings us to the justified state. Yes. But that faith that lays hold of Christ unto justification unites us to Christ. And the virtue and power of His grace by the Spirit is at work in us by degrees to make us more and more like Christ. And then fourthly, it constitutes a call to a right view of the nature of Godliness. It constitutes a call to a right view of the nature of true godliness of character. You see, true godliness is not only, hear me carefully now, respecting the do's and the don'ts of the Bible. Now, there's no godliness without respecting the do's and don'ts of the Bible. I hear people say, the Christian life is not a matter of do's and don'ts. You bet your boots it is. Just read the latter part of the epistles when we come to the end of Ephesians. What is a husband supposed to do? He's supposed to love his wife as Christ loved the church. What's a wife supposed to do? She's supposed to submit. What's a father supposed to be? He's not to provoke his children, that they be discouraged. What are servants supposed to do? Yes, the Christian life in true godliness is made up of a whole bunch of do's and don'ts. But hear me carefully. It's not merely a bunch of do's and don'ts in external wooden adherence to the prohibitions and to the mandates. It is the formation of the very character and disposition of Jesus within us by the Holy Spirit, producing an attitude of delight in the way of obedience, to say, I delight to do thy will, O my God. And as there was in our Lord an attractiveness, a winsomeness, a magnetism, a sense of being comfortable with our humanity, children drawn to him, women at ease with him, publicans and sinners throw banquets for him. And he's at home. He's at home. You see, there's a concept that if we take our walk with God and being a holy man or woman seriously, we're going to be something weird. No, we become more human. The more we become like Christ, the only perfect human that walked upon our earth. Adam had a few days or weeks, we don't know, but apart from that. And in our Lord, when you read the Gospels, isn't there something beautiful about his 
gentleness and his manliness, his courage, his tenderness, something that is attractive. That's the true nature of godliness. Conformity to the likeness of Jesus. And may God grant that more and more that beauty will be upon us as a people. That as we plead, O God, by the Spirit, do that work of transforming me into the image of your Son. May I feel in any circumstance where he felt, what he felt, as he felt, by the power of the Spirit creating those emotional states within me. May I think as he thought. May I choose as he chose. May God grant that all of us who say we believe upon him will more and more be manifesting likeness to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that the Holy Spirit would be present to press that word home to every heart. We pray for those who need desperately to have a little judgment day in the light of what they've heard this morning. May they not go away like the man who looks in the mirror, sees himself, sees the smudges on his forehead and walks away and forgets all about it. But, O God, may there be some smudge removing this day in our homes, in our deep and close relationships. Help us, our Father, that we may, by your grace, be a people marked more and more by likeness to our beautiful Savior. We ask you to have mercy upon those who have no heart to be like him, who are utterly content to go on defaced, marred, twisted image bearers of yourself. O Lord, bring them to the place where they see that they are in a wretched state, and may they cry to you for mercy and for grace. We look to you to seal your word to the profit of each of our souls and grant your blessing upon us as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.